Hello, Coach Nation. Brendan Cale here to introduce a pretty exciting guest today, New York Times bestselling author and member of TED Talk's Top 15 all-time most popular speeches, Susan Cain. Her book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, became an instant psychology and business classic a couple years ago. Today, Susan is going to tell us a bit more about quiet, and we'll discuss how its concepts intersect and complement the world of coaching and on-field performance. Please give her a follow on Twitter at Susan Cain, or check out her book and see why professional athletes like Justin Herbert and NFL GMs across the league are talking about it. Enjoy. Could you sum up Quiet's main takeaway for listeners? We live in a culture that is biased in favor of extroverts, and that is a colossal waste of talent and energy and happiness because a third to a half of the population is introverted and all those people, it's a lot of people, um, uh, have the ability to contribute massively to the world because of their quiet temperaments, not in spite of it. As a lawyer, you think pretty extroversion, right? Like a lot of law is not necessarily theater, but you're getting up in front of a court of law with like real high stakes, negotiating with, you know, people's lives or massive contracts and egos and, and all this stuff. And then, you know, that kind of set the springboard up for this work on introversion. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually had that experience quite directly because when I first started as a corporate lawyer, I went in assuming that I was at a huge disadvantage because of being on the more you know, quiet, cerebral, like think about everything side of the human behavior spectrum. Um, and and I found, uh, and, then I re- and then I started looking around me and realizing that, you know, that at least half of my very fancy law firm's attorneys were introverts. And a lot of those people were thriving because of having a more quiet and thoughtful style. Um, and then, and, and then I kind of figured out how to make it work for me too. And that was just one of many ways that I started thinking, wow, you know, we've, we've got this assumption that that's the only way to prevail is to be the, whatever the hardcore extroverted dominant one. And that's not actually really true. So. Yeah. And I, I think um, in terms of, you know, different societies and workplaces, they have these default settings for what is preferable behavior and what's not. Uh, how do you define introversion versus extroversion? Um, and then what do you see as the difference between introversion and just being shy? Cause I- yeah, sure. I mean, so a quick definition of introversion and extroversion is um, the question of where do you get your energy with introverted people? Just getting more energized from being in quieter, mellower surroundings. And, you know, they'd rather socialize um, one or two people at a time and in a big group, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and they might be very socially skilled, but they will want after major socializing to, to want to really re- recharge those batteries. Whereas extroverts get more energy from being in hyper-stimulating situations. And so for an extrovert, the liability is much more being in too quiet or mellow a situation, and then they'll start to feel um, unhappy and kind of listless and sluggish. So, um, so those are those are two kind of all-purpose definitions. Um, and in terms of the de- the difference between introversion and shyness, shyness is much more about the fear of social judgment. 
So a shy person in any kind of situation where they're being evaluated, like a job interview or for some people dating, um, could be public speaking. Um, shy people will tend to, everybody gets a little bit anxious in those situations, but for shy people, it's, it's more acute. Um, and a shy person has a tendency more when they're looking at somebody with a neutral expression on their face, the shy person will, will tend to read disapproval into that neutral expression and then feel very upset about the disapproval. So that, that kind of gives you an idea. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, the, the statistics say that it's about half people are introverted and about half people are shy, um, but they're not necessarily the same people. So some people are both shy and introverted, um, but you could also be an introvert who's not shy. Uh, and I always think um, a great example of that is former President Obama, who was quite introverted, but I really think not at all shy. Um, and then you could be a shy extrovert, like somebody like a Barbara Streisand, who apparently had a very big personality, but stopped performing for decades because her, her stage fright was so crippling. So, you know, the, they're complicated um, concepts, but I, I actually think of the work that I do as being um, about and on behalf of shy and introverted people, because even though like, even though inside a person's heart and mind, they're, those are, they're very different traits in terms of the way they show up within American and increasingly global culture they tend to have similar patterns. Mm. So I really work on both. Uh, you know, and if you're, you know, using the definition of shy as being fear of judgment, some of the most ext extroverted people, I mean, teaching in a high school for like a decade, you know, some of the loudest kids I have are, have some of the, like the most debilitating fear of social judgment out of any of the kids. Um, you know, when you talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, but you, you would never really get that outwardly or superficially when you see them in the hallways being loud and whatnot, but under that facade of being macho or, or being the queen bee, there, there's like this crippling doubt and fear of like, well, I have to live up to this certain standard and everybody's judging me. So I have to look perfect and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think the hardest combination is often the shy extrovert because that's a person who, because of their extroversion, is really craving being around people all the time. But being around people causes them anxiety. Um, whereas for a shy introvert, I mean, it's sort of a different set of challenges, but, it, but for introverts, they, they really do tend to derive a lot of, of pleasure and interest um, in, from activities that they do on their own or with people they know well. So um, their shyness might not always come up as much. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's that that's like a doom loop for the shy extrovert, right? <laughs> like you, you, your personality is, is your default as a personality is to be around people, but the more you're around them, the more that insecurity is fed, and the more you need to be around people to fight it. Um, yeah, though you know what? But I would say one thing, which sure. is um, because shyness is a form of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Anxiety can actually be to a large extent overcome, or at least you can learn how to work with it. Mm -hmm. um, whereas introversion and extroversion are more about like your actual personality style and preference. Gotcha. Um, not that they don't change at all, but, but, it, but it's, it's different in that way. Um, so somebody, I, I just want anyone listening to know, you know, if you're a shy person and listening to this, that, that really is something that you can work with. Um, 
And in fact, we, we, I, I think you wanted to talk later about my own experiences and overcoming my fear of public speaking, which I did. And so I'll, I, I can tell you exactly how to get over that. Yeah. So, so let's do that actually. So you, um, so you hopped off the lawyer train, um, <laughs> you, kind of took you a while to kind of collect your thoughts on quiet, quiet comes out, um, it's popular. And then kind of tell us how you got into your Ted talk, which is well, one of the most highly watched Ted talks of all time. Um, but you, you know, your default is more introversion. And this is like a huge, uh, kind of obstacle to overcome that you talk about in your book, but, but talk to us about how you kind of overcame that fear of, of public speaking and being on the spot. Yeah, sure. So, so first of all, there, there are, just to say that there is this subset of introverts who are totally comfortable with public speaking. Um, but I was not one of those. I was somebody who was deathly afraid of it. And even though I was a lawyer and I got through law school and I got through my years of corporate law, um, I don't know, during all those years, I just sort of grit my teeth through every public speaking experience. And I, I would lose five pounds every time I had to make a speech because I couldn't eat or sleep for the week beforehand. Like it was, it was quite extreme. Um, but what happened was before quiet came out, I knew that I was going to have to be out there in the media promoting it. Um, and I, I cared so much about the ideas in the book and about being able to be out there as a writer, which was my lifelong dream to become a writer. Um, so I really didn't want my fear of public speaking to stand in the way. Um, so here's the thing, any anxiety that you, I say you to whoever's listening right now, any anxiety that you might have, whether it's public speaking or something else, um, psychology has actually figured out how to cure it. Um, and the answer, it's almost like a magical process and it's called desensitization. And what you have to do is expose yourself to the thing that you fear, you know, like that expression of the only way, what is it? You can't get around a fear, you have to go through it. Mm -hmm. um, you have to expose yourself to the thing you fear. So in my case, I had to actually speak, publicly speak. Um, but the crucial tweak on that is that you have to do it in very small, manageable doses so that you're having small successes each time. So I went to this class for people with public speaking anxiety, where on the first day of the class, all you had to do was like stand up and say your name and then sit back down and then you were finished. Um, and you declared victory and it was all good. Um, you know, and then you'd come back the next week and, and um, I think the second week we had to stand up and answer a few questions about where did we go to school or you know, where did you grow up? Like just easy, straightforward things. And then you were done. Um, and, and he would even, do, he, I say he, meaning the teacher, would even do things like um, at first when you would stand in front of the class, you wouldn't stand by yourself. You would stand with other people flanking you to your left and right so that um, you as a person with this, this crazy fear of the spotlight um, would, wouldn't feel like there were too many eyes on you, like there were other, other people who were also taking some of that spotlight away. Um, so there are all these, all, all these uh, structures built in to make the steps incredibly small and incremental. 
Um, and it, it is almost a miracle the way you can, you can follow a process like that and actually get to a place on the other side that you wouldn't have thought possible. So in my case, I ended up um, giving a TED talk about my book uh, you know, a few weeks, I think it was, I don't know, very shortly after it came out. And for the TED talk itself, I was flat out terrified that I got through it. Um, but then after that, once you give a TED talk, then suddenly everybody wants you to come and speak to their company or whatever. So for the right. last 10 years, I've had this crazy career as a public speaker where I, I, I've, I've spoken to almost every company that you can think of and lots of schools. And I don't really get nervous anymore. Like mm. I've kind of come to like it. Um, and I, if you had told my self 15 years ago that that would have been possible or in my future, I would have thought it was unthinkable. Uh, and that, but that's like such an interesting process. I think like, when well coming from the sports world or in teaching world where i'm at i mean even in like charter schools and whatnot where i've taught there's americans in general seem to have this like you know go big or go home like go all in dive all in burn the boats and all this stuff and mm -hmm. um but but that's really like the quickest way to like cause whiplash and have you <laughs> relapse um it's almost totally. like you're it's almost like crash dieting for trying to overcome your fears um and it, it kind of reminds me of, I heard a quote, I forget who said it, but it was on, on being, uh, the podcast on being with Krista Thippett. Yeah. But it was like, um, when you come across the mountain, don't ask it to move, just take a pebble with you each time. Mm, and I, I think, mm -hmm. I think like a lot of, it doesn't really matter the realm or the, the, the setting that you're doing it in. There's almost like this misconception that everything is all or nothing and it has to be fixed right now. Uh, whereas you're saying, you know, it's psychologically researched and, and whatnot, it, it is so much better to piecemeal it, to uh, kind of gradually increase the um, the exposure to that thing that you fear over time, rather than just trying to face like, you know, it, it all at once. It's so much better because what happens, um, using the speaking as an example, you know, if you start out by trying to give a TED talk, what's likely going to happen is that you are going to fail. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a, um, a panic attack and not get through it. And then you're further encoding and you're, there's a whole process in the brain of how this works, but you're basically further encoding the wiring in your brain that tells you that you should never be on a stage ever. <laughs> you know, it's basically the amygdala in your brain, which is responsible for keeping you safe and for your fear-based um, uh, reactions. Your amygdala is basically is, has learned over the years, never be on a stage. That's a dangerous place for you. Um, so what you're wanting to do is rewire it to learn that a stage is actually okay. But if you um, start by giving the TED talk, you, there's just way too much of a chance that um, it's not going to go well. And now you're further encoding that fear. So I always say to teachers, um, you know, especially when you're taking students at the middle school or high school years, there's such tender times in a kid's development you should be finding out about each child like wait how do how do they feel about how, how anxious are they or aren't they um, about public speaking on a scale of one to ten and you should have the kids be working within a range for them that is mostly comfortable but just a, 
a stretch just to the outside of their range. Um, and that's probably going to be different for each child. And I, I know that's more work and maybe less practical, but, but I think crucially important. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're in 2021 AD, but our biology is stuck in, you know, 200,000 BC. So yes. you know, we, we think that we think that we're all smart and we have these cool sleek iPhones and whatever, but you know, your amygdala is still basically the same thing it's been since you were a cave person. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't change just because you have Wi-Fi. Um, and, and I think that what we're, what's happening is we're kind of running up against, you have, you know, one third, to, you know, a significant portion of the population in any setting that's going to have a default toward introversion. And I'm curious, at least, you know, we can't really change the biology of things, but, um, you know, ideas are something entirely different, especially in the United States. Like if, if you, I'm sure you've traveled and if you've ever traveled abroad, like you'll always know where Americans are because they're the loudest people on the streets mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and they wear sweatpants. But <laughs> yeah. um, like when I was in Ukraine for Peace Corps, like I've never been in a, a major city of 5 million people in Kiev, and it was totally quiet. Like you're in their version of Times Square and like nobody talks to each other. But wow. of course, every, t- every time like a bunch of Americans roll out, it's, it's so loud. And I think Americans tend to be a little bit more extroverted in, in general, or at least outwardly. Um, but where do you think this ideal uh, portrait of the extroverted athlete or the extroverted student or uh, leader or professional comes from? Well, I mean, it is a real feature of American culture and, and cross-cultural psychologists compare one culture with another and, and have found the U.S. to be very much on the extroverted side of the of the spectrum, um, and it it really can be traced deep into our history. Um, one one of the big aspects is that when we switched from what historians call called a culture of character to what we're in now, which is a culture of personality. Um, that's when extroversion really kind of went over a tipping point. Um, so what they mean is the culture of character, which is what we had up until the 20th century, um, that was a time when people were living more in small towns and they knew each other pretty well and they tended to assess each other based on what kind of character they had. You know, were they good people? Would they help their neighbors? Um, were they worthy? And you can even see this in the self-help books from the 19th century um, that they used words like honor and character and worth and integrity, words like that. Um, But then in the 20th century, when people started moving into cities and needing to go for job interviews and take jobs as salespeople and and that kind of thing, um, suddenly you start looking at the self-help books and they're all about magnetism and likability and um, charisma, Dale Carnegie, all that stuff. Yeah. So that's when we really went through this big shift. Um, And I would say we're still living with that heritage today. And then I, and then in, and um, I think in sports, you see that all the more so. Um, I, I, I remember coming across a study that found that typical athletes are more extroverted than the population um, at large. And although we can obviously think it, and we could talk about it of, of many uh, prominent and pretty inspirational ex- um, exceptions to that. Um, 
but yeah, whether it's because um, we're, we focus on team sports, which tend to attract extroverts, um, not sure what that is, but I, I have seen that, that uh, data. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, and if it's fun, it's interesting because, you know, youth athletes today are, or youth sports, high school sports in general, like enrollments down, it's not, it's more talked about as a football thing because obviously there's a highly publicized issue with concussions, but um, it, it just seems like kids are um, not signing up as much for sports. Nobody can kind of put their finger exactly on it, but um, as the enrollment in sports goes down or struggles, the enrollment in e-games and, you know, uh, you know, online gaming or maybe more and I, I have gone up significantly. I mean, the entire e-gaming industry is worth more than every major sports league combined. Um, and, and maybe that's, maybe that's because that I'm curious, like if there's any studies been done on that, but the, the demeanor of a gamer is more introversion, I, I would imagine. Um, like, so yeah, I guess, I guess in terms of, you know, whether kind of, however this culture came about, um, it does seem like at least athletes and, and students, or at least in schools and sports teams, there is this default setting to more extroversion. And I guess for you, like, what do you think schools and businesses and sports teams are missing out on when you have coaches or administrators uh, or bosses who tend to only favor workers or students or athletes who are extroverted? Oh man. I mean, you're missing out on so much. I mean, first of all, just from the standpoint of personal worth and happiness, which is really what matters at the end of the day, um, you're sending the message to half the population that there's something wrong with who they are, um, which causes tremendous psychic pain. And I know about this psychic pain because I have been getting letters from people for, and talking to them for the last 10 years or whatever it is since my book came out. Um, and it's profound. Um, and why would we want to do that? I mean, probably the, the biggest, the, the, the word that I hear most frequently after people read quiet is the word permission. You know, people saying, oh, finally, I feel like I have permission to be myself. So think about what a huge thing that is to be for teachers and so on, to be sending the message that you don't have permission to be who you are. Um, you know, and, and all introverts can relate to that. You just you know, constantly get into the habit of gritting your teeth and, and spending your time doing things you don't really want to do and, and then, and not doing the things you do want to do. Um, so I'll give you an example, just one, this is just one example of gazillions, but I think it says a lot. Um, I got a letter from a high school student who went to this school where at her school, the, the, the extracurricular activity that got the highest accolades was, was being a peer counselor and it was a, to other students. Um, and it was the selective thing. You had to apply for it. And she applied and she kind of twisted and, and she, the, the teacher who was running this program was very extroverted and favored extroverted kids. And so she turned herself into a pretzel trying to conform and she did and she was accepted um and but then after about six months of doing this program the teacher pulled her aside and said she was too quiet for it and she was basically kicked out 
Um, wow. And she was devastated, like really devastated. Um, but in her devastation, she started hanging out after school with her biology teacher working on science projects. And in fact, what she had really loved to do all along was science. It was just that that wasn't what was rewarded at her school. Um, but now, because she had been rejected from this other path, she pursued what, she, what had been right for her all along. And she ended up getting a scholarship and majoring, I think it was in biomedical engineering, um, and published her first scientific paper at the age of 17. And I always think of her example because I just think, God, you know, like what a, what a waste of, of psychic, emotional, academic energy, um, all because of a system that only rewarded one way of being. Right. Yeah. And I, in terms of, you know, as a teacher and uh, I read your book and I was, I was like, man, like thinking back to all the years that I've taught, like the, the common refrain for, I would say I'd had just kind of, it actually worked out to the numbers that you said. Usually it's about one quarter to a third of the kids that I had who uh, in my classes over the years, they were more introverted. They didn't, they got great grades. And, um, and just because they didn't speak didn't necessarily mean they weren't thinking or had really good thoughts to contribute. And so I, I tried a little experiment with, okay, in, if you don't want to verbally participate this week, that's totally fine, but I'm going to require that you keep some type of a daily reflection journal. You could do it daily or weekly. It should be ballpark X amount of, of pay. You know, don't give me nothing, but you don't have to write a book either. I just want to see that, you know, what your thoughts are on things. And, and like, I got some really thoughtful responses and emails from kids in there um, for their... I guess, written uh, par participation reflection, which I use that as their participation grade. Um, and I'm thinking, man, like, you know, multiply this by, you know, the teachers in the entire school. And I don't know that there's many other teachers that are trying to assess kids in a way that favors their, um, you know, the kids who might be more introverted. And it's funny because at every teacher in service, you always hear about, uh, Bloom's taxonomy, and you hear about Maslow's high, you know, hierarchy needs, but and that's all great. But then, as soon as the the teacher PD's over, everybody just goes back to whatever worked in the way that they were taught thirty years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that you could not think of like a more uh, self defeating exercise than teacher PD usually. But, um, but it, it, like in terms of like sports teams as well, or in businesses. Um, do you in your research did you find that more extroverted but less qualified people were promoted to positions of influence because, oh yeah because of their extroversion yeah yeah you see that a lot um yeah i'm trying to think of the one study is coming to mind that looked at CEO performance, and I'm not going to remember the exact details right now, but for example, um, they, they, they found that, that the more extroverted and quote charismatic CEOs tended to be paid more, but not to deliver better results. Um, and in fact, there was one that, well, there've been a number of studies looking at um, the performance of introverted leaders that find that the actual outcomes that those leaders bring are as good at, and in some cases, better 
than the outcomes of extroverted leaders. So I think one of the big things that we're missing is that there's this gigantic pool of leadership talent that is not being tapped. And I say it's not being tapped because it's, it's kind of weird when you look at these studies sort of side by side, there's one set of studies that shows that introverts tend not to be tapped for leadership positions in the first place. And then there's another set that finds that introverts, once they are in leadership positions, do really well. Um, so you look at those side by side, and you're like, huh, you know, something's not adding up there, right? Um, you know, and even in the world of sports, like um, uh, Sam Walker, that great book, The Captain's Class, where he looked at uh, some of the best performing teams and, and found that what really made a difference for those teams was having the right captain and that the right captains were not the loudest, flashiest ones. And in general, those actually tended not to work well, work out well, um, but rather the ones who are just kind of quietly dedicated um, to the team and really like taking the time to figure out what motivated each of their teammates and taking the time to, to um, sort of teammate by teammate, give, give each person the motivation that they personally needed. Yeah, that's it's so funny. We talked about this before we started recording, but I was just talking to a bunch of high school coaches exactly about this. Like, how do you, how do you guys choose your team captains? Some guys let their team vote on it, and other guys says, "No, never let the kids vote. They don't know what the heck they're doing." And another <laughs> another guy says, another guy says, you know, um, you know, of course you want the the. I think my question was, do you do you want your captain to be a rah rah like you know loud guy? And mm -hmm. one guy said, oh, of course, you know, you, you can't have a, a, you know, you don't want a, a mute as your captain. They have to <laughs> rally the team together. And the other, the other coach on the other side said, no, give me the best worker, the best character guy. And then, you know, basically the consensus was you, you almost kind of need a blend of both. I mean, you don't want, mm -hmm. um, I, I, how did it, uh, coach his name's, uh, Augie Thierry. He's the head coach over at Danbury high school up in Western Connecticut. Um, does a great job, but he basically kind of, uh, surmise it as you know you want to try to balance for every really loud more extroverted captain you want to try to balance it with an introverted one um what kind of those quiet uh dedicated guys um but you I mean in a situation where you have co-captains yeah so, so most high school football teams have like you know four captains or so depending on how big it is mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, and so in your research have you found is there has there ever been any studies or research done on like ratios of extroverted leaders to introverted ones and how organizations perform? Yeah, well, you know, if you look, you actually often see people um, sort of organizing themselves that way, and I think it's because most self-aware leaders know exactly what they're good at and what they like to do, and vice versa, what they're not so good at and what they'd prefer not. Um, so. So yeah, you often see those kinds of arrangements um, in, in company leadership situations. Um, but what I was also thinking about uh, with, your, with, with your coaches who were debating this is some of it depends on the nature of the team that these particular kids would be leading. Like I'm thinking of research by um, Adam Grant, who is a... a a psychology professor at Wharton, 
who does all kinds of great research. Um, and he did one study where he was looking at, at a chain of pizza places that had all different managers at their different chains. And he found that the introverted managers got better results than the extroverted ones did when they were managing employees who were already proactive. Because in those cases, if, if, you, if you have a bunch of proactive employees or maybe um, football players, um, the, the introverted leaders were more likely to bring out the ideas and the energy of those proactive people. You know, they wanted to hear what they had to say. They would integrate their ideas and, and respond to them. Um, whereas extroverted leaders tend to be putting their own stamp on things more, it's like they're more dominant. Um, so uh, an extroverted leader with proactive employees wouldn't, wouldn't get the best of those employees. They wouldn't, those employees' ideas would never even rise to the surface. But in the cases where the employees were not as proactive and they needed somebody to really um, rouse them and inspire them, in those cases, the extroverted managers did better. So I would say to your high school coaches who were debating this, that, that one part of the equation that I don't know if they were taking into account is the nature of the team mm. itself, not just the captain. Yeah, that, that's interesting because you, you also, you don't just want to plop somebody into a leadership position who has no uh, idea of the situation they're stepping into. I mean, there, there's <laughs> definitely teams that you might have a top heavy class with a lot of upperclassmen who have a lot of egos and, and whatnot, or you might have a, an underclassman heavy uh, football team with a lot of inexperience and they need somebody to kind of help motivate them and prod them. And um, that's interesting. I think that, yeah, that's a real, I, I, I think the high school guys will, will enjoy debating that one and yelling at each other over it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I also think it's good to think about um, the extent to which all people, and in this case, introverts, um, can figure out ways to draw on their own strengths and also to step out of their comfort zone when they need to. So I'm thinking of Justin, Justin Herbert, um, the quarterback, who he, he actually says that he, like, that he was very quiet and shy um, and he read quiet and started thinking about ways to really draw on his own strengths um, and go, and, and, and he talks about um, kind of pushing himself to connect more um, with his teammates and going outside his comfort zone to do that. But, but he wasn't, but in doing that, he wasn't like trying to be a different person. He was still being himself and drawing on his way of connecting. Um, and, and that's, I think, a space that we need to be thinking about more. Like, I think we tend to think about it in this very either or way, you know, you're either Mr. Ra Ra um, or nobody hears from you at all. And in fact, there's room for a lot of different leadership styles. A lot of different great ones. Right. Well, and I think that's, that's particularly fascinating for sports because I mean, any good coach will acknowledge to you, like, you know, the football is the, just the sideshow. What you're really trying to do is you're trying to help, you know, develop responsible, happy young people um, through, through that sport. And part of that is understanding what your leadership style is. What's your role going to be on the team? Are you the scout team player? What's the demeanor that you need for a scout team guy? Um, and I think it, it calls on a lot of coaches to 
um, not necessarily be like a, a therapist per se, but you, the, the one theme that is recurring, whether it's an NFL coach or a, a JUCO college coach that I've had on the, the podcast is always, you know, you, you really have to have your finger on the pulse of the demeanor of your team, both as a whole, uh, but also individually and, and knowing, you know, what mood the team is in it almost like that the team becomes this like uh living organism so to mm-hmm, speak that you have to mm-hmm. like continually tend to yeah 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 you know i mean when in thinking about who is going to be the right captain or whatever i think as much has to do with the ability to have that kind of psychological attunement as opposed to one personality style or another yeah yeah for sure and, and there's no i don't think there's ever a moment where you and that's also another misconception is that um, I've arrived. I have finally figured out that I am a, an introvert 94% of the time and an extrovert, you know, the other 16 or 6%, whatever. Um, it, especially for coaches too, because you just, people don't stay the same. They don't stay still. It's like you're, you're trying to play a game with moving goalposts, um, if you will. Yeah. And it's also that you, I mean, you develop different skills as you grow. So whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or an ambivert or whatever you are, you know, you're layering all kinds of skills and experiences on top of that. You also, um, I think we all kind of grow over time, our ability to operate outside our comfort zones and figure out how to do that, um, which is something maybe worth talking about for a sec, like that, because there's actually research on this that- um, Sure that if you try it, you, you should be stepping outside your comfort zone only in the service of something that you actually care about. Um, so, you know, in this world, let's say you actually really care about being a great team captain or whatever. Um, you might say, okay, that is my personal goal. So I am willing and I want to go outside my comfort zone for the times that this isn't gonna feel right for me. Um, but, you, but you're doing that from a place of caring and passion as opposed to thinking I have to be someone I'm not. Um, so those are two completely different mindsets. Mm. And then if you're operating from the right mindset that's honoring who you are to start with, what you do is you give yourself um, what the psychologist Brian Little calls a restorative niche when you're done. Um, so let's say you are that introverted team captain who's you know, spending extra hours hanging out with your teammates and figuring out what everybody needs. Um, you might want to make sure that you're getting a lot of time after that to just go and kick a ball around for hours by yourself or, or whatever it is that's going to be your way of recharging. Um, but understanding yourself well enough to give yourself what you need so that your well doesn't dry up. And then you can come back the next day again and go outside your comfort zone strategically. Um, and from that right mindset. Yeah, no, I like that. I think, you know, you're, you're building, you, you kind of have to, and this brings us to the, maybe the, the more interesting question. It's, uh, I mean, how much of introversion versus extroversion is, uh, by birth and, and how much of it, how much is it by, you know, your environment? So it's like nature versus nurture are introverts and extroverts born or are they formed? Yeah, so I mean, it, it really is a mix of both, but mm-hmm. psychologists um, believe that it's one of the more heritable of the personality styles. And, and you know, most parents will tell you, they could tell 
<clears throat> excuse me, from the especially if they have multiple kids, you know, that you can see the difference uh, uh, between or among your kids from a pretty early age. Um, and and scientists have even tracked this in babies as young as four days old. So it's really interesting. They give they give sugar water to babies to <laughs> drink when they're like four four days old. Um, and what you find is the babies who salivate more in response to the sugar water are more likely to grow up introverted later on. And the reason is that um, the reason they're salivating to the sugar water is their nervous systems are reacting more to the stimulant of sugar. And they have nervous systems in general that are gonna react more to all the various stimuli of life. So when they're two years old and you put them in a play group of, of kids they've never played with before, their nervous systems react more and so they might freeze up a little bit and not and, and take a while before they feel comfortable and that way of being will stay with them through their lives and of course on top of that temperamental profile is layered experiences and skills and a thousand other things that shape who you end up being but there does seem to be this temperamental profile that that we're born with and and so just to get the labeling or the terminology right, it's um, it's like what is it called? It's a reactive disposition, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. What I was just describing is being more high reactive. That's right. Or okay. or uh, you could also call it highly sensitive. Gotcha. So so high yeah. reactive manifests itself as more introversion. In general, in okay. general, I mean that, that's obviously kind of painting with a broad brush, and sure, you know sure. everybody's different, but but yeah. In general, that's right. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that again, it's like either or, right? Like it's we think of things like an either or light, but um, really, it's a little bit of both. Um, and it's have, and I guess in psychology, you know, there's been studies done on people who might have predispositions to certain diseases or psychological conditions uh, genetically, but if they're put in an environment that caters to you know um, like so for example I think it was a don't exactly quote me but I think it was uh, psychologists were looking at a um, like predisposition to schizophrenia or, or something like that um, in young adults and they they found that even even though certain people would might have a genetic predisposition to schizophrenia or having a psychotic break at some point, if they were put in an environment that was very calming where they would never reach that stress level of kind of kickstarting the schizophrenia, it never really manifested itself. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so again, like that, I guess, how, how does, yeah, so I guess environment does play a, quite a significant role in introversion and extroversion. Yeah, well, I mean, there's all these different categories, but um, but psychologists also talk about orchid children versus dandelion children. Um, and the idea is that orchid kids, the, well, I'll start with dandelion kids. The dandelion kids inherit a temperament where they're just kind of going to flourish anywhere. You know, they're like the dandelion growing up between the cracks of the sidewalk. Doesn't matter where you put them, they're going to grow. Um, and then orchid kids are will like an orchid um, do worse, have a harder time if, if traumatic things happen or difficult things happen to them when they're younger. Um, they're, they're much more sensitive to their environments. 
But what we've also found is that orchid children tend to have better outcomes than other kids if they're in really positive environments. Um, so they'll turn out to be really strong leaders, they'll have better grades, they'll have stronger interpersonal relationships. Um, on all different measures, we found this, that the orchid kids can really thrive. So it's an interesting thing because nowadays there is this message that parents are sometimes given that parenting doesn't matter as much as you think it does. And actually it's really the peer group that matters more. Um, maybe that's true, maybe it isn't, but I would say if you have more of an orchid child, you actually do have an incredible opportunity to shape and nurture your child in ways that will pay off quite beautifully. And I, it, it's, it's a whole line of research I think people don't know and know, know about enough. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, one of the big groups of listeners is parents. Um, and I think that's if you'd be open to it, I'd love to kind of discuss maybe like the intersection of, of parenting and the principles of quiet. Um, sure. What, what advice might you have to parents who, um, and it's mostly parents of like teenagers um, that are listening or young adults, um, but, but what advice might you give to a parent who's kind of struggling to, uh, you know, maybe, maybe their, their child is more introverted or maybe their child is more extroverted. Um, what, what parenting advice would you give to them on how uh, quiet could help them be potentially a better parent? Well, I mean, if we're talking about older kids, it sounds like, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it is really, um, really honoring your child's temperament or honoring your child for who they are and communicating that in every which way. And, and, and that might sound like, I don't know, sort of squishy advice, but it's actually pretty deep and fundamental once, if you really take it in, because it, it, it kind of shapes every interaction with your child. Like, are you coming to it from the point of view of thinking this kid is amazing and cool. And every so often it's going to be a pain, pain in the neck for them that they're more introverted than the norm. And I'm going to have to help them navigate it. And frankly, it's going to be a little bit of a pain in the neck for me. And I'm going to acknowledge that, but man, is this kid cool? Um, that's very different from the mindset of thinking, gosh, I think there's something wrong with this child that I've got to deal with, um, which, which does play in parents' minds. I hear about it. Um, and your child is going to know every single thing you truly think and feel about them. They're going to pick it up. Um, so <laughs> yes, kids, kids have like mind reading abilities. They can see through walls and they have super, it seems like they can, like, they can hear everything. And um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, it, but if your child really knows and feels that you think their way of being is fantastic and cool, that also then gives you the power to be able to talk with them about situations that are hard, like, um, you know, like maybe they're going to a party or to a game or whatever, where they're feeling uncomfortable. You could say, gosh, you know, I, I, I know what it feels like to feel that way. We all feel that way sometimes. And here's how I handle it. Here's some of the tricks that I use when I feel that way. And you're, you're, you're just communicating to them. Oh, it's no big deal. This is part of being human. And they pick that up too. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 
I, I'd say it kind of all starts from there. And, yeah, and, yeah. and also to know yeah. and the following thing, especially important for young kids, but really at any age, um, quiet people in general travel down a longer runway before they take off and fly, um, but they do fly. And so a, a quiet kid or teenager very often needs more time than the average to get comfortable doing whatever. And your kid needs to know that you're with them and okay with them on that long runway um, and that you're cheering when they take off and fly. Um, so they need not to feel impatience from you. They need to feel like you get it and you're just sort of running down that runway with them. That's interesting. Yeah. Some kids definitely have the demeanor of being rocket ship kids or, you know, hyper self-sufficient, jump right in, you know, see you later, mom and dad. And then other kids, it's like, you know, that they, they need a little bit different approach. They need, like you said, they need a longer runway. And I think that's a fundamental uh, struggle that most parents have. Um, I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole of, of course, there's a stereotype against parents. I mean, of the helicopter parent, the concierge parent, um, kind of shepherding their child throughout life and blunting the, the you know, the, the pain of failure along the way. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, like you'll find that in teacher workrooms, coaching rooms, sure. you know, it, it's like, gosh, like, you know, it, it, like parents are spoken about like they're the devil, but I don't think any parent wakes up saying, man, I really want to destroy my kid's teacher today in an email. Well, some may, but most don't. Um, <laughs> But like, are you coming yeah, at Yeah, your... and I'm not talking yeah. about helicoptering, by the way. Sure, I'm more sure. talking about like... Being a normal yeah, person. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and I'm, I'm talking about just getting it. Like, like just taking your child for who they are, um, seeing what their amazing potential is, and knowing that they have their particular pathway to realizing that potential. And you're like, you're, you're helping them find that pathway. So I'm not saying like, you know, lay the pathway for them or do it for them. Um, but you know, it's like, like I, I mean, I'll use a sports example. Like, let's say, you know, you have a kid who's really good at sports, um, but they're, and, and what they really wanted, at, and, and maybe they're a kid who needs a lot of solitary time. Right. And so maybe what you do is help them carve out a life where they're spending hours a day practicing on their own before they come together with their team. Um, and well, that's really great because it actually turns out that that kind of solo deliberate practice um, helps you with sports and with almost every endeavor tremendously, but you're also helping your kid get the alone time that they need um, for them to be at their best. So I'm more talking about like, seeing your child for who they are and helping them figure out a life that works for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, well, yeah. I mean, and that's tremendous. It sounds so elementary, but like, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the crush of college. Um, and it just seems like everything from, from basically middle school to high school, it's like, all you hear about is you know, if you don't get into honors in sixth grade, then you won't get into honors in seventh and you won't get into eighth. And then you'll just, you won't get into a good college and then you'll die poor and lonely. Yeah. And, then, and, and then it's, yeah. you know, and then it's like, I think parents really feel that, that pinch and that pressure to, uh, you know, help realize their kid's potential, but in trying to help their kid be happy, 
sometimes the things that they do to ensure that happiness ensure the unhappiness by, you know, whether you're manhandling your, your kid's college process or you're stepping in to fight their battles for them. Um, it seems like good parenting is extremely, extremely messier than we'd like to think it is. It's very, very messy. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess, um, like in terms of the topic that we're talking about today, like a part of what you can do as a parent is, so let's say you have an athletic child. Um, well, wait, let me take a step back for a sec. Sure. I always say to people, you know, in, in the world of work and in business, um, we, we, we think so much about, well, what is my salary? What is my title? Um, what is my role? And we don't think enough about, well, is this company a good fit for my temperament? Um, you know, am I going to be spending my days doing work I like with the kinds of personal interactions that I enjoy? Or is it going to be too much or too little for me? You know, too, too many people, too few people. We, we don't think like that, even though those are the questions that have a profound impact on how happy we are day by day. Okay, so the same thing is true for kids who are in middle school or high school. Let's say you have an athletic kid. Well, maybe one kid would be happier in a solo sport. Like I was a figure skater when I was a kid and I loved that. Um, and another kid might be happier in a more rah-rah team setting. And as a parent, you're not making your decision for, you're, you're not making the um, decision for your child, but you can kind of make suggestions or guide them or whatever um, in ways that you think might fit their temperament. Mm. So that's where this stuff can come in handy. Yeah. I, and I think back to my own playing, like I, I found, I don't know exactly, I think I couldn't throw the ball very far. So I just kept kicking it. And then, you know, that's actually how we connected <laughs> through, you know, that stuff. But um, I think about kickers, I think about tennis players, golfers, a lot of like you and the ball type sports yes um, yes you know and the kicking is particularly fun and interesting because you're you're like a solo you're like a golfer who happens to and a soccer player who happens to be playing on a football field yep. at the same time <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, you know you and I was just I was doing the math with one college coach I was just talking to yesterday and he was like he was like he's an he was an offensive line coach but he's like man I feel bad for kickers you know you guys work 12 months out of the year for maybe 10 kicks in a game and I was like, dang, like he's totally right. <laughs> um, but I think, and it's interesting with like different positions attract, well, not all the time, but seem to attract certain types of personalities. Like, you know, most kick, every kicker I've met has some type of an introverted bent. I mean, I, to, to do a sport where you have to practice on your own for a lot of hours by yourself, um, mm -hmm, it, it mm -hmm. seems like that is more attractive to, you know, even extroverted shy guys. Um, you know, maybe outwardly they're very bubbly, but there seems to be some attraction and it like, kind of like you said, people tend to find the sports that match that personality. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, a kicking seems to me to have a kind of meditative aspect to it. Um, like you have to really be comfortable within your own mind and be able to control your mind and uh, get it to a place of peace and focus and all of that. Um, so I think you need that as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. We're, we're going to wrap up in like another question or two. Um, what would be, I guess, what's one thing you're really excited about? I mean, obviously quiet was, um, you know, successful and it's impacted a ton of people's lives and um, it, what's on the horizon for you? 
Oh gosh. Well, I mean, on the quiet side, I'm actually, I'm really excited about these courses that I'm developing right now. They're um, developing these audio text-based courses um, for introverts at work and also um, for parents of introverts. And the way it works is you, you basically get a text from me every morning um, with a, a little nugget of something, of, of advice that you can use that day, uh, whether for your work life or your parenting life. So I'm really excited about that. That's in development and it should be ready in a few months. Um, but I'm also working on my next book, which will come out about a year from now. So spring of 2022, I'm in my okay. final edits right now. Um, and it's called uh, Bittersweet, How Longing and Sorrow Make Us Whole. So it's a, yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty um, different topic, but I'd say a similar genre to Quiet, but different topic. Are you able to go into like kind of the premise of, of that at all? Or is that still on, on lock? Well, yeah, I think I'm not ready yet, but <laughs> gotcha. I'll come back and okay. talk to you. Yeah, yeah, comes. no, well, well hey, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll all be looking yeah. for it. Um, okay, so so last piece of advice, what would be the single uh, thing you would like people to take away from your work on quiet if they didn't take away anything else? <laughs> um, that, that quiet people contribute to this world and to their own lives because of their introversion and not in spite of it. That, you know, your quiet and thoughtful and reflective way of being is a superpower that you're not being taught to value probably, but, uh, but you need to start using it as the superpower that it is. Thanks for listening to The Coach Cahill Show. If you found today's show inspiring or helpful, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with a friend. Reviews and ratings are what help us continually attract interesting and engaging guests like the one you heard today. Remember, referrals are the best compliment. <laughs>